Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Want 20% discount on the best earplugs for exercise? Ultra earplugs go in your ears and stay in there. Go to ultraaudio.com, that's U-L-T-R-O, and use the discount code DOM20. That'll save you around $35. That's ultraaudio.com, U-L-T-R-O, and the discount code DOM20. Hello and welcome to episode 25 of Runners Only with Dom Harvey. On this episode, Josh Coman. I made a choice to myself. I made a choice to God, and I said, no matter how hard life gets, I will not choose to do what I decided, what I thought I would do yeah. by taking my life. No right. matter how hard it I would put the pain inside myself, I would talk to people, and I would carry on. You may know the name, you may not. Either way, it's all good. I'm pleased you're here to hear the story. It's an incredible story, and it's a, a great honour to have the opportunity to share it with you. Uh, Josh was an 800-metre runner, really good too, the fastest in New Zealand, when he got lethally sick with leukaemia. And ever since then... He's had health setback after health setback, and he's been fighting for his life. He's in a great place today, though, physically and mentally. And as a matter of fact, just a few weeks after we sat down for this conversation, Josh became a dad for the very first time, which is so cool. Check out Josh's website, joshcoman.com. That's K-O-M-E-N. And on that website, you can buy his book, The Wind at My Back, if you want to learn more about him and his remarkable story. Just before we get into it, massive thanks to my friends at Rockburn Wine who have jumped on board as the official sponsor for this week's episode. Anyone who knows me knows how much I love my Central Otago Pinot Noirs and Rockburn is my absolute favourite. If you're going to a dinner party and want to impress the host, bring a bottle. Or if you're looking for a thank you gift for someone that you like a lot, like enough to spend $45 on, you cannot go wrong with a bottle of Rockburn's Pinot Noir. It is that good. Alright, let's get into it. Episode 25, Josh Coman. Hey, runners only, yeah, yeah, let's get it started hey, hey, this is runners only with Dom Harley Fast paced, slow and steady, anywhere you coming Just wanna connect for everyone who loves running This is runners only, yeah, yeah let's get it started hey, hey, this is runners only with Dom Harley Fast paced, slow and steady, anywhere you coming Just wanna connect for everyone who loves running Hey, runners only with Dom Harley Runners Only with Dom Harvey and Josh Coman. G'day, mate. How you going, Dom? Going fantastic. It's so good to have you here in my motel room in Christchurch. <laughs> nice setting, though. Nice location to Hagley Park, mate. But it's um, an absolute privilege to be here today and have a chat. Is that so? Yeah, it really Thank you is. very much. You've yeah, you're saying... some wonderful guests on your podcast. Yeah. Barry McGee, Arch Jelly, listen to them. Fantastic humans. Yeah, the old yeah. dogs. Yeah, it's nice to bring out these stories, too, and hear what they've got to say. Yeah, and it's great to have you here because you've got a hell of a story. A hell of a story that you wouldn't wish upon anyone. The, 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 like you, th- you think of the, the person you hate most in the world. You wouldn't wish what you've been through on on on, on the, even that person. No, not at all. Mm. I, I really wouldn't want what I went through on anyone. Um, but it's my story. It's my journey. So it's my responsibility to, to be able to share my story now. So hopefully other people who do go through hard times can have some perseverance or some encouragement or some inspiration from myself yeah. to um, go forward with yeah. what they have. Yeah. Um, first things first, uh, mentally and physically, how are you now? How are you today? Oh, I mean, if you compare me to the runner that I was, you know, I'm talking about maybe 
50%, but from where I was being in a hospital be- hospital bed in a coma, I'm fantastic, mate. Yeah, I'm great. awesome. Great. You know, I can walk, I can talk, I can breathe, do a bit of running, do, do a bit of sports. Some things, you know, I never thought I'd be able to do, and um, here I am. So right. very grateful. Oh, that's good. Well, let's go, let's go all the way back. So first of all, you're, um, you're like an 800-meter runner, the fastest in New Zealand. Yes. Uh, and, um, t- on, the, on the cusp of um, like Commonwealth Games. Yeah, I'll, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, I had a fantastic year in 2011. I only had one race, but I had a great build-up. I had two New Zealand silver medal 800-meter races, and I finished second in both of those races. And finally, in 2011, I had a great off-season. Um, it was fantastic. I got some Ks on the leg. And 2011 was my year. It was yeah. the year that I was going to win this gold medal at a national level. And then that was going to be the, the um, pedestal going forward. Um, who knows what would have happened, but unfortunately I didn't get to compete in that 2011 um, national champs. And I had the fastest time, 800 metre time, until I got diagnosed. So, yeah. What was the time? What sort of times were you I was at 151. I mean, Fuck. it's fast. <laughs> it is fast <laughs> in, the, in the essence of someone from the outside, but when you're in that competitive realm, it's not that fast. Yeah, does that make sense? Man, no, it is. It is by anyone's standards. That's bloody quick. So, what would you do a kilometre in? Okay. You, you keep going for another two hundred metres. Yeah, early twos. Yeah. Two, oh my god. Mid two twenties. Oh wow, that's insane. Yeah. yeah. Ridiculous. Okay, so you, yeah, um, <laughs> man, there's so there's so much ground to cover with you and so much to un- unpack. First of all, you've got a sipper bottle. You're sipping on that. What, what what's the reason behind that? Um, I don't really produce saliva. Yeah. Um, had a lot of radiation. And this, um, I had a transplant. I got this graft-versus-host disease, and it's attacked all the attacked the endothelial cells in my body, like the skin, the fascia, mm. the ligaments, and um, inside my arteries as well. So I struggle to produce saliva. Yeah. Okay. So, so you're a coaster. You're from Greymouth. Greymouth. Born and bred. What's it like there? Magic place. Very, Is it? Yeah, magic, mate. We've got some. We've got some amazing people on the coast. Good, hearty souls. Soul to the earth. Um, a fantastic community. And going through what I went through, I had fantastic support mm. around there. Tough bastards, eh? Is that uh, where is that where the grit and determination to be an eight hundred meter runner came from? Do you yeah, think? Yeah, definitely. I ran with a guy called Eddie Gray on a Sunday. He was sixty five when I first met him, and he was hard. He was a former um, cross country New Zealand cross country champ and a ten k champ, and he got third at the Worlds in nineteen sixty nine at the World Cross Country. Yeah, and he was hard as nails, mate. He would go out running his pants on a thirty degree day, <laughs> running over the Paparoa Hills, and I really admired him. Mm. He just was had this pure tenacity about him, yeah. and I adopted that. That was my method of running. No matter how hard it got, I'd still continue on, and um, Eddie, Eddie really um, signified that. Yeah. And what was life like growing up? What were your parents like? Parents were great. I had a great yeah. mum. Um, my dad, we didn't have a great relationship. He was hard at work, but I didn't really understand my dad. Um, he had a very, very tough childhood, and through my diagnosis, we actually got to know each other a lot better. But I had a fantastic childhood, all in all. My mum was a really loving, caring mum. <laughs> yeah, but Dad was great. He was always working. He worked at the coal mine. He was trying to provide us kids something that he didn't have, and I really respect that now. Was he just not um, not a great communicator? What do you mean? Um, or was he just a hard, strict? He, he was tough, but he was fair. Um, he was always working, and he was tired and exhausted. Yeah. Um, and he had strict disciplinary actions with with me being the oldest, but that was that was fine. But his background is ten times tougher than what I had it. In what I mean, way? In what way that he come? My grandfather come from post-war Holland. Okay. So he set up a farm in Wataroa, and his mother, his wife, sorry, my granddad's wife, passed away when dad was two, and he get, got sent to an orphanage. 
got physically abused and things like that. Right. Then okay. came back to a dysfunctional household, yeah. And they lived in pure poverty back then as well. So he had it tough. He didn't have the parenting skills to bring me up. But yeah. mum, she was soul of the earth. Lovely, yeah. lovely lady. But my dad's an amazing man. From what he knew and what he had, he um, created a fantastic environment mm. for me to be able to thrive. Yeah, do you think it's just from that generation where, I, I don't know, where it's, you know, you just didn't show any sort of vulnerability or... Yeah, absolutely. I never saw my dad cry until I was diagnosed. So that's that's right. when we got to know one another. Yeah, yeah. And I was always yeah. seeking for my dad's approval, but he was, he was never there. And I, I got a lot of other role models within my community. Yeah such as a man called Glenn Gibb. He was a former international Kiwi rugby player. He lived next door. He'd always take me running or doing um, physical activities, mountain biking and things like that. Yeah. I love my dad dearly. Yeah. I'm not not discrediting my dad whatsoever. Mm. He's, he's a great man yeah. and we're great mates now. We really yeah. are. That's good. Are your parents still together? Yeah. Are they? Yeah. 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 Oh, geez, I can't wait to talk about your mum. We'll get into that later because um, <laughs> I've heard you on some other podcasts talk about her and it seems like just a... A wonderful relationship, oh, mate. Yeah, yeah, she's she's my she's my light. She's yeah. She, we, we, did you always always have that close connection with her, or is that something that strengthened <laughs> strengthened over the years with the illness? Uh, no, no, I've always had that close connection. Yeah. My sister teased me a lot that I'm the mummy's boy <laughs> favourite. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, being the oldest, I mean, I think you have that closer connection to your parents as well because you've got that time by yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But so, you've been around longer than the others. Yeah, so I've always gravitated yeah. to mum, and and yeah. I absolutely love it to death. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Okay, so um, so, so so you're running. You're in the form of your life. Yeah. Um, you had a job as well, though, right? You were, uh, yeah, I was a qualified line mechanic, so I left okay. school when I was 16, 17, become a line mechanic, and it was a hard physical job. So I worked physically hard, and I trained hard. That's all I knew, work mm. hard, train hard. So that was my kind of philosophy back then. <laughs> and it was great for me to get to where I got to, especially coming from Greymouth and training by myself, mm-hmm. the likes of Eddie Gray and, and Ruth Croft. But a lot of that was solo training. It gave me that perseverance to kind of be accountable for myself. Yes. But it also hindered me in the way that I pushed myself far too far, mm-hmm. far too far where I probably was a, a correlating factor to how I got sick. Really? Because Do you think so? Because you tr- just trained so hard? Trained so hard, but I, I didn't eat well. But for me, I worked 10 to 12 hours a day, sometimes six days a week. Mm-hmm. After that, the boys would drop me off. I'd run 20K home. You know, I had a good, bit, bit of time in the day. I'd go off and get a load of firewood, cut it up, back in. You know, it was ridiculous. <laughs> Young, what's the saying? Young, dumb, and full account. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was me. Yeah, I thought I could do anything. And then once I started drinking, mm. I'd go crazy because I couldn't really handle my drink. Yeah, right. right. And I'd just go crazy. You know, I got arrested twice for indecent exposure. Did you? I did. Whereabouts? What were the circumstances? In Greymouth. <laughs> I, um, oh, I just, that was just me. I never got angry or anything like that. Yeah. Um, but just when like, I, like fl- flopping your cock out. Oh, no. <laughs> I took my clothes off one day and I said to the police, give them, give them the bird, and I said, <laughs> You can't catch me. You can't catch me. But the thing was, <laughs> they did. Because they knew who I was. So, right, right. So I went, yeah, it's a small town. It's a small town. <laughs> I went back to the pub, was with my mates, told them the story. They're cracking up. My mate saw me. And then the bouncer came up, put his hand on my shoulder. He goes, oh, someone wants to see you outside. Cuffs on the back. Away you go. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, so that's crazy. It was a bit of a loose cannon, especially when I drank yep. and I worked hard, but I just couldn't handle it. Mate. Yeah, it just because yeah, just you were that, that physically fat, all it took was a couple of yeah, beers and it didn't knocked you on your ass. It didn't yeah. take much, yeah. Okay, so when, um, I, 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 I'm quite familiar with your story, and it sounds like you were, you were very, very sick before you even got help. 
And it, it sort of reminded me when I heard your story of um, like Lance Armstrong in a way when he got testicular cancer. Like he was yeah. he was so fat and so used to being in pain um, that his his nut was getting gigantic, and he just didn't even do anything about it. He just sort of persevered through. Yeah, parallels to you. Parallels. Yeah, yeah, I can really relate to that. I mean, I took me probably about a month before. I mean, I had to collapse at the sink before I got taken to hospital mm. to the intensive care unit. What um, were the what were the warning signs though? Oh, there was heaps, mate. So. We're sitting outside Hagley Park. I tore my um, tore my ligaments there and chipped a bone, and the body wouldn't heal. It just wouldn't heal. That was unusual for me. I'd normally bounce back from an ankle sprain quite easily, mm. um, and then I that's before the New Zealand champs. Then I moved home. I decided I've got to get get away, travel, but I got sicker and sicker. Um, I, did, I entered in a bike race round runner. It's a hundred and thirty k race. Yep, and I collapsed halfway. I was up with the leaders and I collapsed. I'm like, what the heck's going on? Um, what, what do you mean you collapsed? I just fell off my bike. Yeah, really? I just got so dizzy and I fell off. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. So I thought, what's going on? Maybe I'm just low on sugar. So uh. I pushed my bike for half an hour to the Lake Brunner store. I walked in, staggered in. I need, a, I need some chocolate. I need a Coke. <laughs> <laughs> I sat there for another 10 minutes going, finish the fucking race, man. Just finish the race. Because that was my mindset. That's just get the coaster's mentality. Just eh? get the job done. Yeah. So I picked off little places where I biked to and I was struggling and struggling and then finally the last person to overtake me was a guy who i knew and he had he had had cancer and about maybe a k 2k away from the finish line i said even a fucking cancer patient can overtake you mm-hmm. finished the line collapsed i said i'm never riding a bloody bike again <laughs> and i slept for about maybe a week and really just fatigued just fatigued i was done and i just had low hemoglobin just low red blood cells i yeah why why did it take so long for you to seek help you, you must have known. How old were you at the time? I was twenty-three. You did? Did you have like a gut instinct that something was wrong? I think you were just ignoring it, or what? No, I put it down to the fact that I couldn't compete at the um, New Zealand Champs that year, and that was my year to show everyone what I was capable of. And I was in denial. I didn't want to be sick. I knew I was sick, but I didn't want to be sick. And that's the big thing. I wouldn't. I wouldn't reach out for help because I didn't know how to. Yeah. Because I was my own man. I knew how to. I knew how to control my own environment. I could do it all by myself. But I was about to learn I couldn't, and I was soon going to learn I had to reach out for help. So it took me to the point of death to, to basically collapse at the sink. My brother picked me up. Mum took me to hospital. And then the next day, I got diagnosed with acute myeloid leukaemia. Right. How did, how did you look at that stage? Like, had, you, had, had the weight been dropping off you? Did you look ill? I looked ill. Yeah. People saw I looked a bit different, but no one really said anything too much. Mm. Um, but it just comes back to being young, Dom. Mm. I just kept pushing. I, d- I, I didn't want to know about it. I didn't want to be sick. Mm. Yeah, I, was, I had a p- trip planned overseas, and I wanted to go over to Southeast Asia, experience a bit, and come back and give the running a go again. Yeah. yeah. So that was the plan. I just wanted to go overseas and just reset myself. Yeah. Because not competing at the New Zealand Champs that year just, just devastated me. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, yeah. of course. And also, listen, no uh, no judgment from me. I had a massive tumour growing in my gut for like 10 years. Um, and I, I ignored all the warning signs yeah. as well. Yeah, I, I ended up collapsing during the Auckland Marathon. So no, no, my, my health journeys, but that doesn't have anything on yours. But same sort of thing, just just dumb, not listening to your body. Yeah, why, why didn't you listen? What, what did you I don't know, I just thought, I thought, I don't know, I thought I was just getting older and... Uh, and you know, I don't know. I started running again. And I felt ill when I when I'd run, and I thought, oh, it must just be because I'm old. And I was like thirty at the time. Okay. It was just dumb. Yeah, it's dumb. It's dumb. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you're in you're in hospital. Uh, what, what do they say when you go in there? Do they like how do they break the news to you? Oh, it was. 
probably not the most professional way that day. It was it was a day like this. It was yeah. dark and gloomy, clouds out. And I woke up in the morning feeling a bit better. I had a blood transfusion and I was on an IV. My mum and parents, my mum and dad, no, my mum and uncle walk, walk in with this concerned look on their face. And then the doctor come in and he just said, you've got cancer. And my mum just burst out crying. And I was just so confused. And then there was this old guy in the bed across from me. And he said, my brother-in-law died from can't you know tell it and I was like, what the heck is going on? <laughs> so the doctor pulled the curtain. It should have done a bit. Should have been done a lot more professionally in an office somewhere private. And then my mum was crying. My uncle threw his arms up in the air, said, "No, no, no." And I was like, what the heck's going on? Why am I causing so much pain in my family? Mm. Yeah, and that was just. And then I couldn't fly overseas. Had my first series of blood transfusions in Greymouth Hospital. Then I got sent over to Christchurch to the South Island Bone Marrow Unit. I was about to understand my diagnosis, understand my cancer, and understand the um, treatment protocol. Mm. Yeah. When you think back now mm. um, about how you were told and stuff, does it does it make you angry or no, 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 no? I'm not angry about that. Mm. I was I was just so caught up in being diagnosed with cancer and not being able to fulfil my dream of representing New Zealand. Yeah, it had been completely taken away, and I became so angry. Mm. How could I get cancer? Like, I was one of the fittest, fastest in New yeah. Zealand. And then it was like, how, how the heck did I get this? Mm. And I got so angry, real angry. Really? Yeah. Ang- angry at what? Just, your, just your circumstances? Just yeah. life, eh? Mm. Just, you put all this hard work into something, you work 10 to 12 hours a day, you save your money, you go away to races, you're training, you have this goal set in mind. And my, my vision was so narrow because I only had that gold medal in sight. Mm. And I wasn't really appreciating what was around me, that the ability be, to be able to run. Yeah. 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 And I, I didn't see that. I just thought my life was completely taken away mm. because that's all I knew, work and running. That's all I knew. And um, at that time, did they say it was a, a terminal or did they, what, what was the chance of survival that was given to you? Um, so I, I went to the Christchurch bone marrow unit and it took a few days to understand my prognosis and where I was. So it started off as a good prognosis mm. and then by the end of the week, I was about... I got given 10 to 30% odds of my cancer. I had So I got put in the poor prognosis bracket. It was never terminal. Yeah. 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 10 so, to 30% is not great, though. Not great. But um, I thought, oh, I'll trust the doctors. They know what they're doing. Yeah. I've got no idea. So I said, oh, I'll just sit here and take what I've got. It's a bit of chemo. Maybe mm. it's just like an ice pack on my ankle. It'll heal. <laughs> That's my mentality. But I didn't understand what chemotherapy was going to do to me. Yeah. What does it do to you? Oh, it stripped me apart. First round of chemo. <laughs> I was, I was about to understand what real pain was. First round, my stomach lining got stripped away and it just shrunk to the size of a walnut. And I was in hysteric pain that first week. And the nurse on, she was an older nurse, she was about to retire, and she was coming in with big boluses of morphine injecting me into the stomach. And I just started saying, I don't want your fucking morphine. Just, you know, it was not me. I don't swear. It's yeah, yeah, just yeah, not yeah, me. Yeah. And I'm having all these things coming out. And I actually wrote her an apology letter, and she actually came up to me the next day, and she goes, don't worry, love, I've had way worse than that. Mm. Some stuff goes on in here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably worth um, highlighting at this point. Um, so you're, you're an 800-metre runner, so you're used to putting yourself in uncomfortable situations. So I'm guessing you've got quite a high pain tolerance. So when yeah. you say it's fucking painful, it's, <laughs> it's fucking painful. It was terrible, yeah. I, I hadn't, I hadn't um, physically experienced that bad pain. That, that, yeah. I love that good pain. <laughs> You know, going out, getting a load of firewood, lifting it on, sweat running down my face. You know, that, that um, feeling of, it's like a meditative freedom, running, pushing myself. I mm. loved it because I knew it would end some stage. 
I didn't know when this pain would end. I had no idea. Mm, so was it just continuous? Yeah, it just it just lingered. So I knew I was that was my first round of chemo, and then I'd have to have five more rounds. <sighs> That's just relentless. And then I had I had the leukemic cells in my central nervous system, so I had to have these lumbar punches, intrathecal chemo into my central nervous system. What's that like lumbar punch? That's like a big needle in your yeah, back. Yeah, so it's a big needle into my um, spinal cord. And they injected in there to um, mop up the leukemic cells within my central nervous system. And then I also had to have these bone marrow aspirins once a month to understand what the cancer was doing because the cancer was derived from my hemopoietic stem cells, these stem cells that live in our bone marrow that mm. basically create our immune system. Yeah. So they had to suck out a bit of bone in my hip through this big needle and it was, <laughs> it was just painful. I was on the nitrous oxide gas oh the NOS yeah, yeah how good loved it mate loved it and I was just doing it to pass out I'd just be sucking hard on it and I just zapped this needle in but I had this really bad experience with it it didn't work and the doctor just mucked it up it took him four goes to get it to suck this bit of bone out so it was just this Furious. continuous cascading of physical demeaning pain for ha- how long does that last for? so the, the treatment protocol for that first eight months was a month in isolation locked in isolation I'd have a week to 10 days of chemo, depending on what the dose was. When you say in isolation, what, is, what does that mean exactly? So basically a little room, maybe a quarter the size of this with a little kitchenette, okay. and there's a double ventricle door, air pressure door, so only the nurses and family were allowed in and some friends now and then. So it's a very small room with a bed, your drip, your, your line, and a little kitchenette where you could um, cook some toast or, or get a bottle of water. And it's literally isolation. Literally no isolation. Yeah, yeah. Visitors were allowed in. Yeah, we had visitors, but um, you, you're locked in a room by yourself. But I had a view, beautiful view of the park, Hagley right. Park next door, which um, kept me sane. Right. Yeah, because I'm guessing for a, like a fit, active dude in his 20s, that must have just been like mentally like torturous. It was, and that was the hardest part about it. And when I talk about real pain, that was the compounding pain with that physical pain, and then I had that mental pain. My whole life got taken away, and I had basically was in despair. I disconnected myself from everyone because I thought my diagnosis was killing everyone around me because everyone was so sad and I thought I've, I've done something bad to everybody else. Um, Why did you think that? Everyone was so sad, Dom. I thought I'm... Yeah, but it's not... I, it's, it's, it's like, you know, you can't, you can't hold any uh, no. like guilt or shame about that. Like, no, at uh, the time I did though yeah. because I was a man. I was supposed to be helping other people and that's what I thought because I always helped out other people. That's who I was. And I just didn't, I just didn't like seeing my mum in such distraught seeing me, and I didn't know how to handle it. And I looked at myself. Once you see your physical change in the mirror, and, <laughs> and you saw yourself from from who you, from who you used to be. Yeah. You know, you fit, strong, and healthy, and that's what you loved. Working outside all the time, and you're locked in an isolation room with your own thoughts. And I didn't know how to control it. Mm. Just didn't know how to control it. I really didn't. I didn't even know how to talk to people. I didn't want to talk to people. I didn't even know the words to say, hey, can you help me? So what did I did? I thought, jeepers, when I was out. <sighs> Sorry, mate. I thought, I can't control these thoughts. I can't control this cancer. The only way I can end this is taking my life. So I really thought about it. And I was up on this balcony. And... So I'll get through this. That's all right. Take your time. And I just couldn't contain it, Dom. And I put a leg over and I thought, all right, this would be a good way to go because I couldn't control anything. Maybe I could control my situation by making a choice. 
And in that moment, as I was thinking about it, this bit of wind hit the right-hand side of my face, and I still feel it vividly, and I turned around and I saw my mother's cup of tea. (laughs) And I saw her cup of tea. It just hit me in the heart, you know. It hit me there. And I said to myself, I can't put the pain I'm feeling inside my mum. I just can't do that. It would be worse... It would be worse for her than for me, what I'm going through right now. So I, I stood away, and I said, oh, I've got to get some help, mate. Yeah, desperate, mate. <laughs> I had to get some help. And this was using my strength, mate. <sighs> this was me using my strength now. So luckily in New Zealand, we have amazing foundations, and there was a canteen. Her name was Sarah, and I said, listen, I need to get some real help. Can you get me a psychologist? And she got a psychologist on board, and managed to be able to have mm-hmm. some bit of an outlet and someone to talk to. Were you offered a therapist um, earlier than that? I did. That seems like a like a almost ambulance at the bottom of a cliff Correct. situation. I did, but I just didn't resonate with them. I just didn't want to talk. I was just locked up yeah, in a closed okay. closet. I just didn't want to. I had Like getting diagnosed, I had to collapse at the sink before I could get <laughs> treatment. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was on the edge. <laughs> I had my foot, you know, before how, I could how, where, where, how high? Four stories up, I was on the fourth story. Okay, so right. Yeah, it would have done. 15 metres, maybe. Jeez, what an awful way to go. Yeah. I, it's, it's tough to think about now, and I think, holy heck, what were you thinking? Was it just to, was it, you, you, I mean, you didn't want to die. Did you just want to escape the pain? Is that what it was? And I just wanted to escape the pain in my mind, because I didn't know how to control it. I wanted to escape the physical pain, and I didn't think there was a life ahead of me. I couldn't see it. I was so blind, because I was focused on this pain that I was in right now. I was just blind. I was like in this closed closet. And I hated being in isolation. I hated mm. being sick. Mm. I hated having cancer. And I perceived myself as this weak, loser, pathetic man that had no control of his life. I really did. And it was silly. It was just Really? Silly. Were, you, were you, like, embarrassed? I was. I was. Yeah, that, that is so fucked up. Mm-hmm. And from, with the benefit of hindsight now, from where you are now, you can, you can see that, can't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just a silly mindset that I had. It was ridiculous. Because I thought I was a man. I could control everything. But it wasn't until I got real help where I managed to talk to someone and understand that this was okay, that these thoughts are normal, that I finally got out of that dark hole. Yeah. Yeah. And I also, from that, it was a real pivotal point. I got help, and he basically told me, it's not you, Josh Coleman, that wants to die. It's just the pain in the situation, mm-hmm. you know. And he assured me this will, this will soon pass. So I went back into the hospital. I got given this book. It's called Man's Search for Meaning. Oh, I know that. Victor Frankl, yeah. Concentration camp book. Mate. Incredible. My favourite book in the world. Yeah. And I read read a passage in there. And Victor Frankl went through a whole heap. You know, mm. suffered horrendously. Yeah. You know, he made a choice to stay with his family in Austria, and he got captured by the Nazis and put in Auschwitz. And he said in there, the last of the sh- human freedoms, you know, when everything gets taken away, the last of the human freedoms is to choose to make a choice, to choose one's own way. Yeah. So in that moment, I made a choice. I made a choice to myself, and I made a choice to God. And I said, no matter how hard life gets, I will not choose to do what I've decided, what I thought I would do. Yeah. I'd take in my life. No right. matter how hard it I would put the pain inside myself, I would talk to people, and I would carry on. And I made that choice. Well, from, like from your athletics as well. I mean, you've got, you've got that, that sort of warrior fighter mentality, don't you? Yeah, but I had to get that from yeah. that other story. Because Viktor Frankl went through a horrendous mm. amount and I thought if he could get through what he went through then maybe I could get through what I'm going through mm. which was nothing compared to that nothing compared to Auschwitz yeah yeah 
Were you always religious, or did you um, did you find a religion or God or whatever you want to call it through this journey? It's an interesting question. I mean, my dad was religious, my mum, and I didn't like church. I was in denial all about it. But something really grabbed me when I was in hospital, especially being able to take my life. Um, I In the hospital, yeah, you get a Bible in there, and I actually opened it after I started reading the book. I started reading, and I opened it to a um, passage and it was in Joshua, I just opened to Joshua because my name resonated with that. First thing I read, and I read in the first verse, um, Joshua 1 verse 9, Be strong and of good courage, do not be afraid nor dismayed, for the Lord God is with you. And that just sung to me, it just mm. really resonated with me. And then from then on, I had a belief in God. So yeah. that's that's where I really found it in that moment. I suppose when you're going through what you were going through, you you need that belief in God. You need to have that feeling that there's something on the other side. Yeah, something on this other side, but someone keeping you accountable too. You know, because you read it and basically, you know, how Jesus carried the cross and carried his burdens and sufferings. It was like, well, I need to go through what I'm going through because this is life. Mm. And being in that hospital environment, Dom, there were young kids, there were adults, and I got to see everyone else's pain. Mm. Everyone was going through something. It just wasn't me. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought maybe I could get through this, and then I can encourage other people to get through their own hard times. Right. So, so how long all, all up does it take you to get through this um, this um, leukemia? So that that bout was was eight months. Yeah. Eight months in hospital, in and out, and um, after that, yeah, suicide thing. I really got myself right. I started diary writing, writing a lot of diary. Um, visualization was big. I did that when I was running, visualizing myself running and being happy again. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I did a lot of prayer, a lot of meditation, and I started talking to a lot of people, um, people that I trusted. I didn't yeah. talk to everyone, but diary writing, writing my thoughts down was fantastic. I allowed myself to cry when I needed to cry. That's something that psychologists gave me, so I locked myself in the toilet, cried to myself, and mm. just opened myself up a bit more to, to people who I trusted. Yeah. yeah. So um, yeah, you've, you've got a book out called um, The Wind at My Back. Is that is that made up from your diary entries or your journaling at the time, or was this just a book that you wrote specifically? So it was made up a bit about my diary because it yeah. helped me recollect the thoughts that I had back then. But it wasn't until I was getting treatment in Melbourne that I really started writing this book because um, that was another time where I got in deep depression as well. Mm. Yeah. So I started writing that thinking maybe my life's going to end not by me taking it but by the disease that I had. Mm. And um, maybe it's just a memoir for my family or all my nieces and nephews. Yeah, it's, it's a hell of a story. Yeah. Hell of a story. Um, okay, so so you survived the first bout. Is that is, yep. is that where you go to, when you go to Nepal? So I get out of, out yep. of hospital and I recover remarkably well. Right. Yeah. So I was quite confused then. I really couldn't associate m- myself with a lot of my friends in Greymouth, so I kind of disassociated myself and I just went surfing, mate. I was out in the surf. What What do you mean? Had just something changed in you or yeah, in them? I, just, or? I was just searching for the meaning of life and yeah. what's going on. You know. Beforehand, I was out partying, taking my clothes off, running around, <laughs> doing, doing all that stuff. And I, and I thought, there's more to life than just yeah. doing that. Yeah. yeah, I had I had, I had experienced so much in that eight months. Yeah. And I was understanding who I was and what was going on and what's this pain and suffering on going on in life. And also, too, I just loved being by myself. I really did. I enjoyed it. It was different this time. It was just, just me, and I was praying, I was thinking, and I was out in the surf, and I just loved being out in nature, mm. just connecting. Just connected myself back out, back yeah. out in nature. Yeah. So I was out in the surf, and then a um, friend, a good friend, Ben Wallace, he rang me up and he said, hey, bro, do you want to go down to Nepal to Kathmandu? And I said, no, mate, fuck off. You were joking. I just, I just went. Were, were, you, were you well enough to travel at that point? No. No? <laughs> Probably not. But I knew life was short, Dom. Yeah, yeah. And it was like you knew that you needed to take opportunities because something can be taken away from you so quickly. <laughs> 
So I rang him back and I said, yeah, mate, let's do it. I was out in the surf one day and I just slapped my hands down and I said, yeah, mate, you just got to do it. So I t- spoke to my doctor. He said, yep, good as gold, go do it. And I got on the plane, arrived at Kathmandu, and it was just overwhelming. Just being, It was my first overseas experience too. So, yeah. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Actually. Yeah, I've been to Australia. Right. Yeah, been it to Australia. It doesn't really sorry. count. It yeah. doesn't really count. Yeah. You know, Aussie's similar to New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. Going over there, I mean, you land, you go, you get out there, and there's just all these people, tuk-tuk, and the smells and the senses and seeing everyone around. But this trip really changed my life in a, in a huge way. It gave me a real good perspective of how good I did have it in my mm. hospital room. It's a very poor place, isn't it? Very, very poor. I think it's in the top five right. poor places in the world. But I got in my tuk-tuk, and he's taking me to the backpackers where we're staying. I was driving along and just in awe of where I was. And I saw these kids, you know, bare feet, singlet, a couple of them had no tops, and they were playing in this rubbish. And they got up and they're waving at me with these smiles, Dom. And I thought, holy heck, how good did I have it to suffer in such good conditions? Mm. You know, I had my mum, I had yeah. a bed, I had the treatment I needed, and I had good food. Yeah. You know, I had everything I needed to suffer in such good conditions that these kids had nothing. And I thought, holy moly. That's some perspective, eh? It was. It really was. So it really fulfilled me then that I didn't have it so bad. I didn't, really didn't have it that bad. Mm. Um, and I thought, no, just go out and enjoy what you do have. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, cause, so um, what you did there is um, something I'd love to do one day. You 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 walked to base camp. Yeah, with my good mate. It, yeah. was, it was tough. How long does that take? It took us... 13 days return, I think, 13 days. Right. I can't recall the exact number off the top of my head, but, yeah, it was about 13 days return. Was it, is, is it tough for everyone or is it just tough for you because you were recovering? No, it was, it's tough for everyone. Yeah. I think there's about 40% of people who decide to go there, kind of get there. I met a lot of people who got flown out. Um, I did get high um, altitude sickness, spent two nights at Tingbulshay, right. spent, spent two nights there, recovered, Got to Everest Base Camp, then climbed up to this mountain called Mount Kalapatar. It's just under twenty thousand foot, and got to watch the um, um, sun sunrise over Mount Everest, mate. And I call these small perfect moments. You know, I just capture them and put them into my heart and hold them there tight because no one could take that away from me. Mm. And I knew how special that moment was. You know, I set myself out on a goal and I achieved it with a good friend. And I saw the sunrise come over, and it's like holy heck! Last year you were in hospital wanting to, you know, what we spoke about, mm-hmm. and here you are. Mount Everest, you know, where Sir Ed was. Yeah, I was going to say, it must feel extra special being there as a New Zealander. Yeah, it was. It was really special. Yeah. You know, we went to the Edmund Hillary School. We got some colouring books and gave some to the kids and the kids. And it was just it was just really, really wonderful experience. Yeah, life-changing. So then um, you come back home. Is that when you start skydiving? Yeah, so... What a f- what were you up to? <laughs> you wanted to become like a skydiving instructor. Yeah, well, they were the two things that I wanted to do in my life. Right. Even when I was running, go to Mount Everest Base Camp and become a skydiver. And I knew there was a high chance of my cancer coming back. I knew that. Yeah, really? What, what, what did they say? The, the yeah, because I was in a poor prognosis. Yeah. Um, they thought they'd try this treatment, just the chemotherapy, and if it did come back, then, I have had to, then I'd have to have an allogenic stem cell transplant. Mm. So that was a backup option. So I thought... We'll have the chemo first and see what happens. Um, so I come back from Nepal and I enrolled outside of Methvin, the New Zealand Diploma in Commercial Skydiving. It was just absolute magic, mate. How many jumps did you do? I ended up doing about 200. Fuck. Yeah. Wow. But that's nothing. You know, my instructor had done 20,000 jumps. <sighs> yeah. So you were, you, you, you were at the point where you, where you were like in charge of your own um, pull cord and stuff that's like it. that. Yeah, yeah I was yeah. responsible. Yep. And I was filming people, um, tandem people. I was filming them. Special experience, like the most freest I've ever felt in my life. Yeah, 
Yeah, it was wonderful. I met some amazing people too and some good friends there too. Yeah. Yeah. No close calls or anything? No, apart from my very last jump. My very last jump, I jumped with a good friend, Ivan, and we went up to 16, no, 18,000 feet, and I got hypoxic, and I started seeing six of them as I jumped out of the plane. I was like, What's hypoxic? Hypoxic when I've got um, low oxygen levels, because right. I've got a low saturation of haemoglobin, so the oxygen can't bind to the haemoglobin. haemoglobin. So I got, got real dizzy, and I seen six of them, like, whoa, started spinning around, and he's like waving at me, like, what's going on? And then I just pulled my chute at 10,000 feet, and just got down to the ground, and you know, I was really dizzy, and, and mm. he goes, hey, bro, what was going on? And I knew what was going on. Mm. the same thing happened prior when I fell off that bike. So oh. I looked at my hand, too, and I saw these purple spots. That was a sign of low platelets. Platelets are anticoagulants that kind of clot our blood. And I just saw that, and I thought, oh, I know what's going on. It's back. It's back. And um, so I rang up my mum and dad, and I said, I know what's happening. Come out for a skydive, and we'll go for a jump together. So I can film you all and have a family, but I was more accepting this time. I understood. Well, yes, I've had peace with it. I was, yeah, yeah. I really was. I've, I've found what I needed in my heart, right? And I made the choice that no matter how hard this would get, I'd continue on with. Hold up! What was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. But I had. And yeah, but you, yeah, you knew what was the. I mean, you'd been there before, and you knew how hard it was, and you had yeah. to do it all over again. Yeah, but this was going to be way physically harder. But mentally, I've got the tools in the toolbox now. Right. I could handle that. Yeah, I could handle that. And um, I had my mum and dad, and I had the people in my corner, and I trusted them, and I was open to talk to them. Yeah, so I was mentally prepared, but physically what I was about to go through was going to be something else. Mm. Yeah, And it was? Didn't disappoint? <laughs> it didn't disappoint, mate. <laughs> it was a little bit harder than the 800 oh, metre race, oh, mate. Wow. <laughs> well, I suppose that's the thing. Like, um, Whatever distance you're running, uh, you're, you're putting yourself in pain, but the pain stops as soon as you stop. So you can decide yeah. to end that pain. Yeah, it's your this, choice. Yeah, this sort of... Um, this sort of pain that you're going through with this, the, these cancer treatments, there's no escaping it. Yeah, no escaping. You just got to get the job done. Yeah, yeah. So why was the uh, why was it so much worse the second time round? So this time I'd had to have what I mentioned before an allogenic stem cell transplant. So basically, what that means, I've had to have um, these hemopoietic stem cells. These hemopoietic stem cells live in our bone marrow, and they basically the factory cell of our immune system. 
So they were going to create a whole new immune system for me. Yeah. So I'd have to get these from a young girl in Germany. I didn't know she was a girl at the time. But they were coming from Germany, so it was a mismatch. It wasn't a, um, it was a, it wasn't a complete match. So there was this risk for graft host disease. So I was going to get graft host disease from it. So what the protocol looked like was two months of chemotherapy, and then I'd have to have a break in between of another two months to get myself get myself right before the treatment, before a transplant. Now, the treatment before a transplant is absolutely horrendous. They kill your whole immune system, basically like Roundup times 10, just spray it so it doesn't grow back. They need these other cells to come in so they can grow a whole new garden, a whole new immune system. Right. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Cool. And so I had that two months of chemo, and after the second round of the chemotherapy, I got put in on, I got neutropenic sepsis, and I got put into life support. And I had this big tube down my throat, and the doctor said to my mum and dad, there's probably a good chance you won't wake up from this. <laughs> and God willing, I did after 10 days. Um, I, God, that must have been hell for your parents. It was, yeah. Yeah, it absolutely was. But there's this silver <sighs> line, I'll tell you the story. My sister tells it better than I. But um, apparently when they were putting me in a coma, everyone was in there, and mum's crying, Rachel's crying, and dad walks in, and he's like, oh, yeah, oh. See you later, son. Ben's over. He's got that builder's crack coming out. <laughs> Let's out this massive fart, mate. <laughs> and you've got five specialist doctors in there like, oh, yeah. He's about to say goodbye to his boy. <laughs> was that what he was doing? So like saying, because he, yeah, he literally thought it was going to be the last time I'd see your life. Yeah, especially for my dad. Yeah. But I must mention earlier, before I got, when I had got cancer that first time, that's when I really got to know my dad, yeah. Mm-hmm. When he first, when I first got to see him cry, yeah, we understood one another. We connected on a different level. So, um, yeah, he he put his hand on my shoulder, you know, said goodbye, did that. We laugh about it now, mate. We can laugh about you it. have to, don't you? Yeah, because the doctor said, you know, he may not wake up, and you know, I did. So, as I said before, you got two months off that last round of chemo. I only had two weeks because the person who could donate the stem cells, they only had two weeks to do it in this period because she was going away on holiday. Right. Yeah. So I got out of this coma, mate. I couldn't talk. I couldn't walk. I was in a wheelchair. I had to ride on this little whiteboard to, you know, I was skinny. I was like a little alien. What, did, what, what do you weigh now and what were you weighing then? It's about 52 kg when I got out of there. Right. I weigh about 61 to 63 now, right. so 62, around there. Yeah. So I was skinny, weak, yeah. And um, I had to have this transplant, so I had that high-dose full-body radiation. I had this high-dose chemotherapy inoculate my immune system, wait for the transplant to come, feed into my bone marrow, start regenerating this new immune system. And for that month, I was in there, just like in the semi-comatose state. But as I said before, these small, small little special moments that happen and sustain you through it, you know, and I just looked outside to Hagley Park, a place that was quite special to me, and mm. I used to see the boys running past, and I, I just visualised myself running with them. Yeah. Yeah. And then my mum would come in and, and give me this sparkling water, you know, with the carbon dioxide bubbles in. And I couldn't swallow because I had um, graft host disease in my stomach. And they'd just pop in my mouth, mate. Pop, 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 pop. And it'd just give me this joyous smile. And it's just little things that sustain me for the day that I just really hung on to. Right. You know, I was in a hospital room. My mum was here. And I had these sparkling bubbles. So it's just small <laughs> things that I held on to. Yeah. So what did you do? You just like sort of sw- swish it around in your mouth and then spit it out? Yeah, I just held it there and just felt felt it go pop, 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 pop. And just, yeah, it just gave me a wee smile. Right. Spat it back out. And then um, chose to wake up for another day. Want 20% discount on the best earplugs for exercise? 
Ultro earplugs go in your ears and stay in there. Go to ultraaudio.com, that's U-L-T-R-O, and use the discount code DOM20. That'll save you around $35. That's ultraaudio.com, U-L-T-R-O, and the discount code DOM20. Right. And when did you when did you realise you were out of the woods? Was, it, was there a moment where you're like, <laughs> okay, I'm good? Yeah, so it normally takes 100 days, 100-day period to kind of see if the transplant's um, accepting your body, and I was having a whole heap of complications. So basically I spent a year in Christchurch back and forth um, going in and out of hospital with many, many complications. You know, I had heart issues and body issues. But finally they got the level of immunosuppressants and steroids to kind of balance everything out, and I, I, got in the, I got in the clear of it. You know, I was good to go home after that year in hospital. So it was basically, let's see how you go. Let's see what, what happens with this graft-first-host disease. And hopefully it doesn't flare up and mm. slowly taper down the medication because I couldn't be on high steroids and high immunosuppressants all the time because that would cause more damage going along in the future, especially yeah. being so young. So I moved to Nelson, just recovered there, uh, tried to recover. And then I got this email. So I got a bit of a part-time job at Skydive Mochawaka, just driving the van now and then for the uh-huh. boys. And, yeah. I got this email, and from um, the receptionist at Skydive Mochawaka, and the, this email said, hey, do you know a guy who's recently had a transplant? He's apparently a skydiver, because I got to write a thank you letter to my donor, but the names get crossed out. Mm-hmm. So I wrote this thank you letter, and she's emailed me back, and she knew I was a skydiver, so she emailed all the drop zones in the South Island. <laughs> and it turned out that she was my donor. So I got her email address. We started emailing back and forth, and I thought, far out, I've got to go meet this girl. I've got to go say thank you. Yeah, and this is not allowed. This wasn't allowed. Why Why is it not allowed? Because a lot of people in the past have taken advantage of the situation. How do you mean? So, How can you... Yeah, yeah, no, good question. Um, so some people have had the transplant. They said, well, you owe me now. Oh, okay, gotcha. Correct, right, yeah, right. you owe me. And and there's a lot of misencounters that have occurred from it. So that's mm. why they kind of keep it separate. Yeah. So I told Ellie, the transplant lady, and she said, I oh, will keep it on the D-Lo. I said, yeah, I know her. Her name was... But this is another funny thing. I just spontaneously called her Hannah when I got this first letter from her because we were writing, but we didn't know the names. Mm-hmm. And I just called her. I just called her Hannah, and her name was Hannah, mate. H A N N A H. Her name was Hannah Boye. Yeah. Wow. That was just a name that I gave her. <sighs> yeah. So it was special. So I thought I've got to go see this girl and say thank you. And you're, st- you're still friends? Or you just want to see her once just for that thank you moment? I went over there. No, her sister, her younger sister's been out and stayed with us for two months, lived with us. I've been over there, met her family. Um, yeah, we're really good friends. Yeah. Really good friends. And I, so I went over to Germany, went to Berlin, stayed there, and I met her and I was just in awe of her. You know, no words could justify how I felt. No words could do it. And I was just, I broke down in her arms and mm. just said thank you, thank you multiple times. It was a harsh winter then. It was the end of the year of 2014. And I ended up getting put in Berlin Hospital. I got pneumonia. I was coughing up blood. You know, I wasn't strong enough to go into such a harsh winter. Got flown back to New Zealand. Came back here. And this graphic host disease we were talking about, you know, it started to flare up. And um, my body was starting to glue itself together. And I got, you know, I was, I was deteriorating. My body was deteriorating. Basically, my body was starting to kill its own self. It was starting to eat itself. I was... Getting glued up, my fascia, my ligaments, and my collagen were gluing itself together. You can see my face now. 
you know, it's all pigmentated and mm. screwed around. My eyes were getting dry and bloodshot, and this is when the saliva wasn't getting produced properly. Properly, So, me being me again, I decided to do this walk to um, St. Angela's Hut, to the Blue Lake. I wanted to go to the Blue Lake, and I did this walk. And this was going to be my New Year's res- resolution, you know, start a fresh year, but my body was slowly deteriorating, but the medication was holding okay. Met my donor, got back. So I did this walk, and my body just started cramping up on the first hill, cramping up and locking up. I didn't know why. Well, I did know why because of the disease, but I didn't, I didn't want it. I fell on the top of that, top of the hill, just locked up like a dead sheep, mate. You know how dead sheep look? <laughs> yeah. Silly as in a tussle. Yeah, yeah. yeah, just near St. Angela's Heart. Oh. And this guy, Jeremy, from Switzerland, he picked me up, took me down the hill. I was in hysterics again, and from then on in, my body just deteriorated. Um, my face flared up red, bright red. I got sent to Greymouth Hospital. They thought I had shingles, and I said, no, it's not. Send me to Christchurch. Mm. And I got this pain called trigeminal neuralgia, and trigeminal neuralgia is described as the worst pain known to man. It's also called the suicide disease because about 20% of people who get this commit suicide. Just to escape the pain. Mate, to describe the pain, it's like a cheese grater behind your eye. Or someone's burning your face while they're stabbing your, stabbing your side of your face. It was horrendous. I was on every pain medication you could think of, and I was screaming down that bone marrow unit, just screaming my head off. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Well, so but that, that pain, does it like come in bursts, or is it just yeah. there continuously? No, no, no. It was there in bursts. Oh. It, was, it was flaring like it was hot, like burning, but then you'd have these severe bursts of pain, and it would just grab me, and it just, oh, just yeah, light me up. What did they have you on? Obviously not enough of whatever they were giving you. Yeah, I was on morphine, fentanyl, ketamine, gabapentin. Yeah, and then finally I got sent up to the intensive care unit. I got given lignocaine infusions, which is an anaesthetic. They did an IV and it numbed the nerve down the trigeminal nerve on the left side of my face. And um, I was pain free. Yeah, but it's still numb. I can still feel it where I'm pointing now. It's still numb now. How's your vision? Is your vision all right? I've had both my cataracts done, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's okay, but not the best. <sighs> yeah. So I had that, and then this GVHD was out of control, mate. I was, the body was eating itself together. It was, mm. And the treatment, the immunosuppressants and the steroids weren't doing the job, so they'd had to, they had to send me to Melbourne to get some treatment. Yeah. Wow. Just how, how can you have faith? <laughs> you know, how can you believe... Like there's there's a God when you've had such a rough fucking hand. Yeah, that's a good question, but the thing is there's been so much worse stuff happen to me. And I thought, why why them? Why not me? Mm. So I made that decision that I'd carry the burden on my back no matter how hard it got. That was yeah. the decision I made. Yeah. Yeah, if them, why not me? Why not me? Mm. Maybe I'm taking the pain away from somebody else. Maybe if I get through what I get through, maybe my story could help someone else that's going through something. Because I know everyone out there is going through something. It doesn't yeah. have to be so significant as me, but I know a story can help someone. Yeah, absolutely. Because I've had people come into my ward and have a chat and say, hey, I've been here and I've got better. Mm. You know, I've been to many, many places, you know, thinking about taking my life and things being taken away from me, but I've managed to hold on to that self-belief within myself that yeah. things would get better. Yeah. And, that, and they really have. Yeah. But we're not there yet. <laughs> we haven't even got onto the heart attacks yet. That's coming up. <laughs> Jeez, mate. Taking Some, me on a ride, Dom. Someone's got it in for you. Uh, Unbelievable. Um, yeah, we'll get to the heart. But your, your health now, it's, it's, it's good? It's so good yeah. compared, to, compared to where I thought it would be. Yeah. It's, it's incredibly good. 
yeah, I can't even fathom that I'm in this position and I'm just so grateful to be alive and yeah. doing what I'm doing. Yeah. And what are the chances of the leukemia coming back or any of that coming back? Uh, I haven't asked for the statistics. Yeah, And yeah. personally, I don't think it's going to come back. Yeah. Um, I think I'm, in my mind, I'm stable, I'm good, I'm healthy, I'm strong. Mm. That's how I see myself. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, and I hold on to that. Yeah. Right. So, so the, the, the heart complications. Yep. Did this come as a result of the leukemia or anything or completely random? No, this was a, basically a result of the graft host disease. Okay, yeah. So we got sent over to Melbourne to get treatment. I'm away from my family and friends, but my brother's with me at the time. And God bless my brother. He's an amazing boy. He was, he's seven years younger than I, and he took it on his back to fly over with me, get myself sorted, cook my dinners, do everything like that, and set himself up in Melbourne just to help me out, mate. Incredible young man. So seven years younger. Than, how old was he at the time? Like late teens, early 20s? Yeah, he would have been about 18. Yeah, 18. yeah. Yeah, so he went for a heck of a lot, but mm. amazing young man for what he did. He took that burden on, put his hand up, and he was responsible for me when I was responsible for him back in yeah. the day. But yeah, he took me over there, and I started getting this treatment. It's called extracorporeal photothoresis. So it's basically down-regulating these T lymphocytes in my body. These T lymphocytes were sending signals to other cells to attack my body, creating this graft-versus-host disease effect. Um, so this, hopefully this treatment would just down-regulate these... Um, um, pro-inflammatory cytokines and, and, and things like that. And it started to work. It was great. You know, my body was freeing up a bit. But these cramps that I talked about, my body would just lock up. Mm. I got locked up down at the corner of Burke Street. And just, I'm in pain, mate. I'm on the ground again. My brother had to come and pick me up, put me on his shoulder, yeah. carry me home. The body was slowly getting better with this treatment. I was getting it three times a week. I was living in Melbourne for six months. But then I was away from family. I was away from friends. And I got that negative thought, am mm. I ever going to get better? This is seven years now since I got first diagnosed. Oh, it's a journey. It's a journey, mate. And I just, when is it going to get better? When is it going to get better? But just carry on, just carry on. And, you know, every day I thought about jumping in front of a tram or doing something silly like that. I thought about it, but it was that conscious choice of not doing it. Just carry on, keep calm and carry on. Why did you, why did you think like that? Just because it was like you so just, just had enough or you were no. exhausted or... Yeah, I was just utterly exhausted. I couldn't produce tears. I'd go walk down and it was just like um, barbed wire in my eyes. And I had this constant pain. And I'd, my body would just spontaneously lock up my arms and feet. And everything would just lock up. It was just, it was a nightmare. It really was. But I held on to hope that I would get better. I did hold on to that hope. Treatment started to work. And I was getting a little bit better. But that graft host disease, as it, it was t- attacking the endothelial cells in my skin but also inside my arteries so I went to this Wim Hof retreat I went to this Wim Hof retreat because I was trying out the Wim Hof method and I was starting to feel a bit good inside myself yeah yeah I was having these cold showers and I was doing the slow breathing yeah for anyone that's um, not familiar with Wim, Wim Hof which is probably not many people uh, the Dutch guy Dutch guy that says a cold shower a day keeps the doctor away yeah, he's yeah. a man absolutely so how did you get on the Wim Hof buzz just like a, an audio book or you read a book or no no a friend um, Matt Walker he sent me the link of this Vice documentary of Wim Hof saying he could help his immune system decrease inflammation in the body do all these miraculous things so I thought oh, I'm desperate I need to just try anything and mm. I'm willing to try anything to get myself better yeah. the doctors were doing a wonderful job of getting me better mm-hmm. credit to them and the nurses amazing people but I needed to take responsibility for myself and try and help myself a bit you know push myself along and I I changed my diet, I was doing a whole heap of things, and I thought I'll try this method. Yeah, and I had my first cold shower, and I felt a little bit good, you know. you know, It's invigorating. It is. 
It's amazing, you know. We increase dopamine levels by two hundred fifty percent by getting into a cold shower. You know, I did feel a little bit good. So, just give me a bit of purpose for the day. Have my cold shower. Feel good. Yeah, I'm in a shit situation. Go have another cold shower. So it gave me that outlet. And then I went to a retreat because Wim Hof was doing this retreat. So I thought I'm going to oh, go. So he was actually there. He was there, wow. and I got to meet him in Federation Square. And he said, "Come, come and do the retreat, man. He's full of energy." I'm like, "Wow, this guy's amazing. I want, mm. I want what he has. Mm. I just want it." <laughs> so I signed up for his retreat, and the first day I didn't even get to attend. I woke up and had a massive heart attack. Now, this is before everyone got to meet each other. Massive heart attack because this graft disease was attacking these, my arteries. And, and ba- yeah, so it was clamping down on that left main artery. Got sent to Geelong Hospital, had another two heart attacks. Got sent to Peter McCullum Cancer Centre, where I was getting treated, had another one there. And finally got sent to the Royal Melbourne Cardiac Unit. I was in there for 24 days where I had another 12 heart attacks. How did you not die? Yeah. Is it your fitness that got you through? I'd say I had a great fitness on the, you know, great foundation. Yeah, yeah. But a heart attack's not cardiac arrest. We've got to remember that too. Cardiac, oh, what's the difference? So basically that's when cardiac arrest is basically when blood flow stops to the heart. I was just getting restriction of blood flow to the heart. So that's basically what a heart attack was. Okay. And I get this extreme pain of just, yeah, you couldn't move. And you could see the ECGs just flip upside down and, they didn't know what to do with me because of my skin and all my collagen and all of those ligaments are glued together. They didn't know whether to give me a heart bypass or just stent the left main. Mm. Yeah, so they didn't know how to go about me. I was pretty special. <laughs> and they, so I wrote the doctor a letter. I, I wrote him a letter and um, I said, I don't care what you do. If I die, that's fine. Just make a decision and learn from me as a patient. Just I wrote him a letter. Next day, heart attack. He went in the cat lab, stented my left main artery. And I was out the next, oh, two days later. Mm. Yep. But then this GVHD flared up, mate. And I became a mess. I was <sighs> an absolute mess. And I remember, I remember um, my friend, Kit, Matt Walker, coming into my, coming into my room in um, rural Melbourne cardiac room, unit. And he had all these bubbles going on. And I was just in the corner just crying my head off, mate. Just crying like, when will it end? When mm. will it end? But it was just holding on to that face that it would. Mm. Just holding on. And I was just crying, mate. Yeah, just sheer exhaustion. Yeah, mm. I don't know if I had much more left, but yeah. I had my mother's love and I had hope. You know, I found God and found a purpose, and mm. I was responsible, so I had to keep carrying on. Yeah, yeah. So I got got more treatment, and then I finally got to go in my first ice bath. Now a lot of people would be questioning this. I've just had a stent in my left main artery, and I was going and going in an ice bath. I was severely depressed, mate. A cardiologist probably wouldn't advise it, I yeah. wouldn't think. Yeah, he didn't advise it. <clears throat> oh, yeah, so, so, so that's your first ice bath. So you go from um, – so you, you didn't even do the, the Wim Hof workshop because you, you're there. No, the, I didn't get to partake okay. in that. Okay. I, I went there. Everyone said hello to each other. We had dinner, and I went to bed, and I woke up in the morning, and that's when I got taken away. Oh, for fuck's sake. So you, you – so um, – Okay, so you go from having cold showers yep. to the ice bath. Um, how did you How did you learn about the, like the breath work and stuff like that? Just on this online course, okay. the 10-week course. Yeah. I was doing that. But then someone recorded a podcast of the retreat, and they sent it to me because they were wondering how I was. Mm. And there was this guy, Dave O'Brien, talking. He had this establishment called Fifth Element Wellness. And he was talking about gut health and supplements and exercise, all this wonderful stuff. And I thought, oh, I've got to go check this out. And I walked into this room and I saw this man called Mark Clore, wonderful man. He's become a great friend. And he's just like this um, 
basically I describe him as a pirate who found his treasure. He was just full of life. He had this big beard. He was tough. Tattoos down his arm. He's like, Joshy, mate, how are you? Picked me up. I'm like, who the heck are you? We've been wondering how you are. So he invited me to come and do this ice bath. And, you know, I was scared. I was fucking shitting myself, mate. But as I said, I was desperate and I wanted help. Shitting yourself because, um, you, what, you thought you might have had a heart attack yeah, in there? Or? Yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah, I did. I didn't know what would happen. Yeah. But I just, I knew that this, exposing yourself to cold, science had validated what it could do for your immune system, your cardiological system, and your neurological system, especially uh-huh. for depression. Yeah. And I went in there and I was so scared. <laughs> and this was a big change for me because I really wouldn't talk to anyone beforehand or anything like that. And I was so disconnected from myself in a way. And I got on the ice and I just breathed through it, closed my eyes. The boys were like, breathe, Joshy. And I'd overcome something that I didn't think I could. And I got out, mate. After how long? I was in there for five minutes. It was about two degrees. And I got out and I felt absolutely incredible. Mm. Like, amazing. Yeah. And I felt this connection within myself again. And I started to pick my head out and... It's hard to describe the feeling. I, I finally felt like I had myself again. I had that. Running was like a moving meditation for me. It was my outlet. It was somewhere. But now I could physically overcome something that I didn't think I could. And I felt it inside myself. Mm-hmm. And I was just, just blown away, mate. Mm-hmm. And, I, and it became my daily practice. Yeah. yeah. And you teach it now. Yeah. Yeah, I teach it now. Yeah, at O Studio here in Christchurch and around at home. Um, in Greymouth, yep, and it's just been an absolute privilege to share something that's had a profound effect on me, especially with my mental yeah. mental state of things. Yeah, so, okay, so for anyone that um, is curious about it or intrigued, like how, how would you start? How do you start? Um, you can look up the Wim Hof Method, Yeah, um, get his 10-week course, um, but basically the method is just deep diaphragmatic breathing, breathing from the diaphragm, mm-hmm. hyperventilating ourselves, and just doing um, slow breath holds. And then we just expose ourselves to a cold shower, adapt ourselves to cold, and then slowly we get into an ice bath. And it's just mm. learning to be comfortable in that uncomfortable situation. Yeah. So combining the breath with the ice, we can control our breathing. And that's, you know, this is what I call full mindfulness. When we're in there, we've only got to focus on ourselves and where we are right now. Just breathing slowly, getting it all under control and just learning to be comfortable in that uncomfortable situation. Yeah. And that's what happened for me, mate. That's what really happened for me. Yeah. There's, yeah. yeah. But there's always a silver lining. So mm. once I had that ice bath, you know, I started to feel a bit better, started to communicate with people. And my story is just another story of so many other stories. It really is mm. that there's always, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel. So after eight years of getting that treatment, I was on a plane back to Melbourne getting treatment and I managed to sit next to this um, young girl. <laughs> And her name, her name was Sybil, and I, and I said hello to her. You know, I wouldn't talk to anyone on a plane before. I'd shy away. And I just said, hello, how are you? Really? Why would you shy away? Oh, just look, a loner or? No, you look at my face, and I was just, I was embarrassed about who I was and what I was doing. I didn't really want to share too much about my treatment and stuff. I really didn't cry yeah, well, through I'm, that. I'm looking at your face in front of me now, and there's, de- there's definite um, pigmentation stuff going on. Yeah. But um, it looks, at, I've, se- I've seen you on TV interviews and stuff in the yep. past. Um, it's, it's definitely looking a lot better now than what it has in the past. So much better than yeah, what it was. Yeah. yeah, for sure. But at that time, when I was getting treatment, it, it was a lot worse. Right. Yeah, I was in a lot worse condition. And you still didn't know you, when you, you looked ill. Yeah, yeah, I looked really ill. Okay. Bloodshot eyes all the time. Yeah. You know, and I sat next to her, said hello. 
she said, I'll go back. And she's gorgeous, mate. She's absolutely gorgeous. And I said, where are you from? She said, from Switzerland. I said, what have you been doing? She's been backpacking around New Zealand, had a great time. Now she's going over to mm. Australia. And I said, oh, cool. And then I asked, oh, what do you do for a job? And um, she said, I'm an oncology nurse, a cancer, cancer specialised nurse. <laughs> what are the chances? What are the chances, mate? So I don't recommend this for a pickup line. <laughs> but I said, oh, I actually going over to Melbourne to get this special treatment. It's called ECP. And she goes, oh, I've never heard of it. So I said to her, do you want to come and check it out? <laughs> <laughs> You're on a backpacking holiday around Australia. Yeah, yeah mate. Uh, and I'm like, what, what was she thinking? So here I am. Didn't think she'd turn up the next day. I told her my hotel, meet me at the front at 10 o'clock. And to this day, it's the first time my treatment got delayed. Normally it was at 10 o'clock, it got delayed to 1pm. So we, unfortunately for her... hours. Yeah, we got, we got taken. We had to spend that afternoon, that morning together. And we had a lot in common. We really did. Mm. And she was just a wonderful person. Do you think, um, do you think she... Um, and this may have even been a, a discussion that you've had since then. Like, do you, was was she legit interested in the treatment, or did she just like you? <laughs> no, I think she was more legit interested in the treatment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so that three hour delay may have been a blessing because it was a chance for you to charm you to know, her. You charm her a bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I didn't really, really know what to say because I've just talked about my last seven years, eight years. I mean, there wasn't yeah. much to say, but she was really intrigued and she was just a generally nice person. But the beautiful thing about her is she didn't see my physical self. Yeah, she saw inside me and who I was, yeah. Man, that's cool. Yeah, man. She, you know, you talk about health, so it's fundamental key people like her who just saw me for me, yeah. A lot of people shied away from me, mm. poor Dom. A lot of people shied away from me, and that's why I didn't want to talk to people before because I knew how scared they were when they looked at me, you know. Mm. And I thought I was a monster how I looked, but she saw right into me, man. <laughs> <sighs> Sorry. No, apology not accepted. And um, she saw me, and we spent the week together. And at the end of the week, mate, we had a we had a nice moment. Had a kiss. <laughs> Jeez, I, yeah, you've got so much gratitude, don't you? Like, I mean, these are tears of gratitude. Yeah, Nothing but, more. You know, it's just the people in your life yeah. that sustain you, mate. You know, I had my mum, and then. I had Sibs. I met her and, and she decided to fly over to New Zealand to come and see me when yeah. I flew back. And this is how special she is, yeah. I was living at home with my mum and dad. I had no job. I was getting treatment for GVHD and I had no income, nothing. And she came over and hung out with me for two weeks and that was it. Mm-hmm. Set in stone. Now we're married, mate. And we've got a kid on the way. <laughs> we've got a kid on the way, mate. You know, oh, it's so good. And that's, that's the true essence of the story, you know. Mm. I'm not 100% to what I was when I was that runner, but I've got so much more than what I had. Mm. You know, your appreciation got, for life, eh? And the people around me, mate. Mm. You know, those wonderful people, the wind behind my back, you know, they were the ones pushing me along. And I finally got my gold, you mm. know, Sybil. And, you know, we I froze my sperm 11 years ago and we – the doctor said, you know, there's a good chance your sperm won't work, but we'll give it a go. And it's the first egg got fertilised, and it was an absolute miracle, mate, because I know how many people struggle having IVF babies. Yeah. I really do. And it was the easiest medical procedure I've ever been a part of. <laughs> well, you deserved it. Mate, mate, myself and, um, and uh, my ex, JJ, yeah, we, 
uh, after I, I had that tumour taken out that I told you about, um, yeah, we were on the uh, the IVF treadmill for a number of years. I think we ended up having like seven failed rounds or something before we gave up. But um, I mean, you yeah, you deserve you deserve that 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 lucky shot. Sorry, man. And you've had no, no, no. I don't accept your apology at all, man. The stuff that you've been through, like you, you deserve some good luck and some good news. And that was it. Yeah, I was just waiting and holding on to that. That yeah. something would change. Yeah, so. Sybil's over here. She's got four weeks to go till she gives birth. And, um, oh, amazing! You know, I'll be a dad, and have I've got this wonderful woman by my side, and mm. you know, I've got something to really look forward to every day. I mean, yeah. yeah. Isn't it funny how everything happens for a reason? Everything happens for a reason if you hold on to faith. Yeah. yeah. What are the chances of you, you know, sitting being seated next to her on a fucking plane ride? Oh, the you chances know? are surreal. I mean, you know, there's too much luck in my life to say it's luck. You know, I'm, I'm very blessed on. I really am. And to be here today to have a chat with you, mate, mm. in, a, in a park across the road from where everything started falling mm. out of control, you know, it's an absolute privilege, mate. It really is to be able to share my story with you. Mm. And I just really hope that what I've been through and what I've got out of it is so much more than what I ever could have fathomed. Yeah. Maybe it could help someone in such a dark situation because I know what it's like to be an athlete. I know what it's like when you think everything's been taken away. Yeah, I coach kids now. And it's just wonderful that I can still give back in a way. I yeah. can't run like I used to, no way. I can only run for about 10 minutes. But seeing these kids develop and setting some good foundations in their life, you know, that's me giving back and that's me being a part of running again. And it's so fulfilling. Mm. Yeah. But how can you say you've had so much luck? Like cause anyone that's listening to the story will be, if anything, you've been unlucky. Yeah, for sure. But it's a, You're just a glass half full guy now. <laughs> yeah, I think... So many, life is about suffering, it really is, there's so much hard stuff out there and I think we're accustomed in life to think it's all good and glossy and I thought that beforehand before I was 23. Going into that hospital room I was, I saw young kids, two years old getting chemo, Mm. I saw young boys, you know, they didn't wake up the next day, I saw dads with young kids passing away, you know, I went to Nepal and saw these kids with nothing, I've seen people suffer. If you want to see something, go into the bone marrow unit. Mm. You'll see real suffering. And everyone's going through something. Everyone is. And it's my responsibility just to go through my suffering and hold on to hope and faith that something good would come. And it did. Yeah. And it did. And that's what I just share to other people. Just hold on to those small perfect moments. Hold on to that love. Something special in your life, knowing that things will change. That things will change for the better. Because I know they will. Yeah. I think you're going to be a great dad too. You, I mean, you'll definitely be, um, you know, more, more open and more willing to display love than what your own dad was, I guess. Yeah, but he showed love in a different way. Yeah. Don. You know, I mean, to say I'll be a good dad, my dad was a great dad. Yeah. Because he didn't have the tools that I'd, I had now. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And he was a great dad in his own way because he was trying to provide money for, my, for us to provide opportunities that he never had. Yeah. And I respect him for that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Jeez, you're one of life's great people. Thank you, you really man. are, man. And um, your book, The Wind at My Back, how can how can people find that? How can they buy it if people want to hear more of your story? Um, you can go to www.joshcoman.com. There's a link there to buy it. Um, I think it sells at Whitcalls and Paper Plus. Um, yeah, you can order it through there. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's the link to the book. But, um, well, thanks for being so open with your story. And uh, I have yeah. to be honest, he's key in this life. And, yeah. you know, there's too much mistruth going on. And, I'm honest as I can be to people, and that, that's what happened. 
um, I'm lucky for my suffering. I really am mm. I'm really blessed about it because it's made me a better person. Yeah. It really has. Yeah. Man, I'm just so thankful that when you were standing on that balcony that day that there was that, that breath of wind. Breath of wind. Yeah, perfect <sighs> analogy. Breath of wind. She took me around and I saw my mum and just that love hit me. Eh? Yeah. yeah. Was she right there, was she? Yeah, because she was looking after me. Yeah. Um, so she went to the supermarket that day. So she was staying at Ranui House. Ranui House is an amazing facility they have in Christchurch for long-term patients where family members can stay mm-hmm. and support them. So she was staying there and those times I'd have that month of treatment and then come out for a week. So in that week, um, she was looking after me. She went out to the supermarket. And I was, yeah. yeah, I thought, yeah, that's when I made that kind of incorrect decision. I mean, yeah, had you done it, and like no one, no one could be mad at you. No one could, you know, you'd be perfectly in, entitled to, but shit. No. Yeah, no words. No. I mean, it's hard to think what I was thinking then, and, and to be honest, I wasn't thinking. You know, I was just in mm. complete despair. Yeah. You know, life was meaningless. I felt powerless. I felt hopeless. Uh, I had no purpose, and I connected myself to death. Mm. That's that's just what I connected myself with. Well, let's hope the second half of your life is better than what the first has been. Oh, every day has been amazing yeah. since I've met Sibs. You know, it really has. You know, and those days of hardship too have taught me a lot, Dom. Yeah. They really have taught me a lot. And we can go through so much. You know, we've all got it within ourselves to overcome the obstacles that, that present themselves. We all have it there. And everyone, someone wants to help someone. And that's the strength right there, reaching out for help. You know, we, we spoke about it earlier in the conversation. You know, I was too young, dumb, and full of cum to do it. <laughs> silly. It was absolute silly. Yeah. Yeah. We all need a bit of help. We need, all need a bit of wind at, at, behind our back. And I'm just so thankful for every person that's come into my life doctors, my Greymouth community, the, the running community that I had prior to that. Everyone's been absolutely amazing. And I love them and appreciate them all. And I just love what you're doing, Dom. You've got some great, great people on this podcast and you, you talk about some heavy-hitting stuff and really get that true, authentic person out and they get to speak some true meaning in their life and I think you're doing a wonderful job, mate. Thanks, mate. Yeah, it all depends on the willingness of the person to share their story and be um, you know, open and raw and vulnerable and uh, you've definitely been all those things today, man, and I'm so appreciative that um, you shared your story with me. No, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Yeah. yeah. No, seriously. Cheers. Josh Coleman, love you, man. Love you too, mate. Thank you, Dom. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening. That's episode 25 of Runners Only with Dom Harvey and Josh Coman, 800-metre runner, cancer survivor, and just a remarkable human being and a real good lad. And I can't thank him enough for being so generous and open with his story. Massive thank you to the sponsors of this week's episode of Runners Only, my friends at Rockburn Wines. Um, in my opinion, the greatest Central Otago Pinot Noir. And I do like my Central Otago Pinot Noirs. If you're looking for a gift for someone, like a thank you gift or a birthday gift, you can't go wrong with a bottle of Rockburn. Or if you're going to a, a fancy dinner party and you want to impress the host, you can't go wrong if you turn up with a bottle of this stuff. Uh, you'll be everyone's friend. So thanks very much, Rockburn. Great to have you guys along. And thank you very much for listening to this week's episode. Do me a favour. If you like it, feel free to spread the word. Tell a friend. I, I find word of mouth is the most effective form of um, promotion for the podcast or like or subscribe it wherever you get your podcast from okay thanks very much hope to see you next week want 20 percent discount on the best earplugs for exercise ultra earplugs go in your ears and stay in there go to ultraaudio.com that's u-l-t-r-o and use the discount code dom20 that'll save you around 35 dollars that's ultraaudio.com u-l-t-r-o and the discount code dom20 Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? 
Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.